Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, a weekly program produced in partnership with the Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsin. On Friday, March 30th, a peaceful mass rally in Gaza turned bloody when Israeli soldiers and snipers fired into a crowd of thousands of Palestinians taking part in the Great March for Return, a six-week-long event that will culminate in the commemoration of the 70th anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba, or catastrophe, the events in 1948 leading to the creation of the State of Israel and displacement of more than 750,000 Palestinians, now refugees in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, surrounding Arab countries and around the world. We'll go to Gaza to speak with Mohammed Abdul Wahab Abu Hashem, a legal researcher with the Palestinian Center for Human Rights and a human rights and criminology lecturer at Al-Azhar University in Gaza. What happened in South Africa could repeat it again in Palestine when all free people around the world just support the black people's rights in South Africa. We want them just to support us to be like them. We are a human being, so we have the right to have our civil rights. We'll also speak with Rawan Yaghi, a writer based in Gaza. And last but not least, we'll remember renowned Palestinian singer, songwriter, and composer Rim Banna, who passed away in her hometown of Nazareth on March 24th after a long battle with cancer. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Do stay with us. On Friday, March 30th, more than 30,000 Palestinians gathered at the border of Gaza and Israel to commemorate the 1976 killing of six Palestinian citizens of Israel protesting the theft of their land, which became known as the Palestinian Land Day. On the first day of what the organizers call the Great March of Return, Israeli military forces opened fire into the peaceful demonstrations, killing at least 17 people and injuring more than 750. The Israeli occupation forces boasted on their Twitter account that they know where every bullet landed during the massacre. They later deleted their tweet. Organizers of the Great Return March note that the objective of the march is to demand the implementation of the United Nations Resolution 194, allowing for Palestinian refugees to return to their original towns and villages that are part of now Israel. The march was part of a six-week event that will culminate in the commemoration of the 70th anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba, or catastrophe. That's the term Palestinians use to describe the events leading to the creation of the State of Israel and displacement of more than 750,000 Palestinians, now refugees in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, surrounding Arab countries, and around the world. I spoke with Mohammed Abdul Wahab Abu Hashem, a legal researcher with the Palestinian Center for Human Rights and a human rights and criminology lecturer at Al-Azhar University in Gaza, about the march and the objectives of these mass protests. So let's start by explaining to our listeners what the March of Return looked like. You were there Saturday with your family. Some of our listeners may have seen the images of people praying at the site of the march, images of tents set up. Describe more what things look like on the ground and what felt like. Many people think about just going to support us peacefully and ask for our right to return according to the resolution of 194 issued by General Assembly. This was the idea. It was dependent on nonviolence resistance as what happened in India and South Africa. And it planned like that. But in Friday, when people get there, some young people just get near to the border. The Israeli forces shot them, even they are, there is no imminent threat on them. So people get angry because some of them got shot in their legs and hands. They started to throw stones on the soldiers. Even these stones will not reach the soldier, of course, because they are away and there are three fences between them and the soldiers, and the soldiers already behind a sand dune, okay? 
they start to kill people rather than just injure them. When people start to get angry more, they start targeting people even uh, within the people in the pack. And they said that they, because they are Hamas. Hamas was there, some people from Hamas and some people from Fatah, and everyone uh, participated, every faction participated really in this uh, demonstration. So uh, they were not soldiers in when they, they when they participate, they have no weapons, but Israeli soldiers just decide to kill them in a cold blood. That's why people maybe this Friday will be more violent, I think, and I don't want this to be more violent, really, but we expect more violent Fridays this Friday. Mm-hmm. And uh, to go back to my question in terms of how things were organized, uh, how things looked like, the tents, can you give our listeners an idea of how things looked on the ground? We just stapled tents there and we planned for uh, folklore events like tabka and uh, singing and something we call the Heya, which is uh, original dance for Bedouin. It's supposed to be like that, and it intended to be like that. But when things turned to violent, things change a little. But during the last days, after the Friday, we get back. For example, yesterday there was a chain of readers. Many youths get their books and start to read before the borders. Okay, The day before, uh, there was the Heya, which I told you it's a traditional dance for Bedouin. Mm-hmm. The day before, uh, it was Dabka. Some people just get there and play football. But people still, some accidents have been there and some people get injured still. I don't know why I think Israeli forces tried to make the demonstration violent because this is the field that suits them. Because if it's about non-violence struggle, so they will not have any justification to use force. So they're trying to uh, provoke people to get violent and then get justification to kill them. It's hard to control people when they get angry. And unfortunately, people already get angry because of they saw what happened and how the Israeli soldiers just kill their friends and sons in a cold blood. Even they targeted uh, some girls and women. So you're saying initially the idea was to organize different types of cultural events and activities. So just yeah. uh, people getting together and just celebrate their culture and be there and demand the right yeah. to return. And then you feel like people were dragged into violence because of the Israeli provocation. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. they tried to uh, send the message to the world that we still have our right to return. We insist to return, really. And if we're to talk about the casualties and the Israeli narrative of the events, at least 17 Palestinians were killed during that day, Friday, and 800 injured with live ammunition. Obviously, there are other Palestinians who were killed after Friday, and no Israeli soldiers were hurt. Human Rights Watch also said that the killing of Palestinians in Gaza was unlawful and calculated. And despite videos emerging on social media of Palestinians being shot in the back or while going far away from the border or while praying, Israeli spokesperson instead insisted that the march was not peaceful and described the march as a violent riot. And they said that Hamas is using the march to cover up for its attacks. What do you say to that? Uh, I know that the Palestine Center for Human Rights had observers on on the ground that day. So in your position as a human rights worker, how do you characterize what happened that day? Everything was videoed by cameras and everyone see what happened. There was uh, young people who threw stones. It even not reached the first fence. I'm talking about three fences between the demonstrators and the soldiers. So when they're talking about violence, it's it just, you know, they try to for people. It's not like that. They are young people. They can't reach the soldiers. Human Rights Watch even said that there is no imminent threat on the soldiers. But even the Israeli leaders said that they will kill any provoker and kill anyone who gets to the fence. They tweeted that on their accounts on Twitter. 
they already admit their guilt by saying they will kill the provoker. If they see anyone active in the demonstration, he deserves to be killed. So Human Rights Watch even said that it's extrajudicial killing. If you just decide this one uh, because he is active to get killed, it's extrajudicial killing. Even he is Hamas or not Hamas. It's a peaceful demonstration. There is no war act or clashes or something to justify firing live ammunition. And so to clarify, the protest happened along the eastern border of Gaza with Israel. But what exactly separates Israeli soldiers from Palestinians who were marching Friday and then continued to march and do their activities? Can you explain more what the fence or what the border exactly looks like? First of all, the demonstration was from five to 700 meters away from the first fence. There is three fences. One of them is electronic one. Okay, anyone touch it, they know where it get touched and they can target them directly. And after the three fences, they make a very high uh, sand shield and they just stand against it. They employed 100 snipers to just target uh, those who provoke or those who near the uh, borders. But as we see, and as uh, many witnesses say, that they targeted people even they are away from the border, even uh, 500 meters and more. Israeli claim after that that they are Hamas. I don't know how they can justify killing someone because he is Hamas. How can they tell okay. that they're Hamas? Uh, because most people were there just in civilian clothes. Like there's nothing that could indicate the affiliation of anyone. I, I don't know how they know they are Hamas. There was Hamas and there was Fatah and this was uh, Popular Front. Everyone was there. Everyone decided just to let the weapons and we demonstrate peacefully. The violent happened come after the Israeli soldiers targeting some people and shoot them in their legs. People get provoked and just start to throw stones, as I said. We can't justify using live ammunition. Mm -hmm. They already have rubber uh, ammunition and they have many other tools. Why they insist uh, to use snipers when killing people while they're away from the fence? It couldn't be justified like that. I think it intended to be violent. And I wanted us to talk a little bit also about the political objective of the uh, march and the events taking place up to uh, May 15th. What's interesting in this march is that from the outside in Western media, Gaza is often associated with Hamas, with rockets, with siege, with the humanitarian catastrophe. But the message this march brings back is the point that more than half of the people living in Gaza are refugees whose homes are now what became uh, Israel and that they're still waiting to return. Talk to us a little bit about how you see things from the inside, the political objectives of this uh, march. Do you think it can bring back some hope for change, considering the current standstill situation in Gaza? It's now more 70 years. We are waiting for our right to return, and people start to lose hope. First, they hit on Arab countries to get them free and to get their right to return and then they depend on popular resistance, and then they depend on armed resistance. And finally, they found out, no way, negotiation is not work with Israel. Israeli is, uh, instead of giving us even part of our land, of our historic land, it was called Palestine before 70 years, it was called Palestine. All the maps before 70 years called this area Palestine. So there was a Palestine before Israel. And we, as a Palestinians, agree that we will take only 28% of it for peace. So what we call now 67 borders or uh, the green line. So we agree that we get our land only in West Bank and Gaza and our capital will be Jerusalem and let the other whole land to Israel, okay? But finally, they want to let us to get our capital court, Jerusalem, take even the whole West Bank. They just want to give us the areas where the nasty population of Palestinians there, they just want to get rid of us. 
they don't want to give us state. They want to get rid of this population and make them to govern themselves without giving them a state or even any right without going back to them. People finally find out that they are reach a dead end. And now we decided the only right we are looking for now is our right to return. We don't want a state we govern. We want to live with Jewish and Christians on the same land and regardless who govern it. We are looking now for one state solution. We want to be a citizen in one country, in one democratic country. We need our civil rights. It's the only solution right now. Two-state solution, Israel will not let give us any state. And if it give us a state, it will be a very paralyzed state. We don't need such state controlled by Israel and under the the force of Israel. I think that is the only solution right now. Many people just stand behind this solution. We believe now in one state, live together and live in peace according to General Assembly Solution number 194 and according to ICCPR, which uh, International uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which said that every person has right to get back to his homeland. Okay. And do you think this message focused on the right to return was the reason why so many people came out? There's numbers that estimate that maybe 30,000 people were out last Friday uh, on the march. Do you think the changing message, the political message, is what's perhaps able to bring all these people together? As a Palestinian, we believe that right to return is the most important right. Our cause is about our right to return. Regardless who governs this state, we just want to be in our uh, lands, our homes, get back from where we, we started. We will not live in diaspora forever. I'm living in Gaza. Gaza is part of my homeland, but it's, it's not my original homeland. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's not my town. Where are you from? I want to get back to my hometown. I'm from Yibna, for example. Yibna uh, is my hometown. We have a big land there. My father get expelled from that and we lost everything and they have to start from zero while we already have a land and a great life there. For us now, it's we want to get back our lands. We don't care about who govern. We don't care about Abbas. We don't care about Netanyahu. We don't care about Hamas. We don't care about everything. We just want our right to return. We want our civil rights. And I want us to talk about the United Nations. Obviously, everything you're saying is connected to the United Nations. Following the events Friday, uh, the United Nations called for an independent inquiry into the killings, as did some of the families of those people killed Friday. Israel refused the investigation, and the Security Council could not reach a decision in that regard. As someone working in the field of human rights, do you still count on the United Nations? And could an investigation be beneficial for Palestinians at this point? How would that be different maybe from uh, the Goldstone report that investigated the events of 2008 war? How do you feel about the United Nations and its ability to do something in the current situation? I don't bet on uh, UN really, but it gives us legitimacy. When UN said that we have the right to return, investigation committee should be established, so it gives us legitimacy. When Israel refused this investigation, we could infer from that that they are trying to cover their crimes. Really, I depend more on uh, the free people around the world. I think that what what happened in South Africa could repeat it again in Palestine. When all free people around the world just support the black people's rights in South Africa, we want them just to support us to be like them. We are a human being. So we have the right to have our civil rights. Hamad, in our show, we talked a lot about the siege on Gaza and the humanitarian situation. Uh, This summer, it will be 11 years since the siege on Gaza. And the reconciliation between Hamas and Fatah was promising some improvements uh, in the livelihood of people in Gaza and perhaps easing of the blockade. 
Do you think people still have hope? How do people get by after 11 years of the tight siege? Really, the siege destroyed our youth. People here lost hope. Suicide attempts become very common. It wasn't there before 10 years. As I see people in the demonstration, people are ready to die, but they want a solution. Whatever solution they want to, you know, when just you suffocate people like that for 10 years, unemployment is 60 or 65% of youth. So it's not life. We can't get out from Gaza. It's very hard to get out from Gaza. And if you want to get out from Gaza, you should pay. Only rich people can get out from Gaza. Poor people cannot, or even middle class cannot get out from Gaza. Because if you want to get out from Gaza, you should pay the Egyptian or get some uh, mediation on Israel to get from Ares checkpoint. Can you imagine how life when you are in a big prison where they just let in what they want and let out what they want? Even, for example, when people threat to fire tires, the Israeli reaction was we will not let uh, tires again to Gaza. So it's like that. If you use anything to resist them, they just prevent it to come in. It's really like a prison. I tried to get out, for example, conferences out from Gaza, and all failed because if I want to get out, I can go through Ares or through uh, Egypt border, okay? Ares is Israeli borders, okay? Mm-hmm. Ares is a checkpoint where we get uh, through the West Bank. And the other way is through a checkpoint uh, of Egypt border, okay? Uh, the Egypt border only works for 30 days, okay? Through the whole year. And very little people get out. And those who get out paid a lot of money to get out. And through Ares checkpoint, if you, for example, write anything bad about Israel in your Facebook and they found out that, you could be present in prison because they think that you are supporting the resistance in any way. It's very dangerous to get through Ares and it's very rare to get through Egypt's borders. We have shortage of everything. We have only four hours electricity a day. I'm now uh, talking to you through generator. Even the sea, all the sewage of Gaza Strip poured into the sea without being treated, okay? See, we should be treated before, before they pour it to the sea. But as we don't have electricity and we don't have plants to treat it in the right way, our sea become very contaminated. Many diseases start to rest between people. There's many aspects of the siege, but the most dangerous one is unemployment, especially among youth. Youth here are very frustrated. They lost hope. They even become very mad against everything. They get angry against uh, Hamas and even Fatah and against Israel. They just want any solution. So the idea of Great March to Return come, just find finally a hope for them to, to send the message to the world. We will not stay like that forever. We should have our right to return. We should have our right as human beings. That we are what we are talking about. It's not about political issue. It's not. It's become humanitarian issue. Unfortunately, our cause was a political one, but now become humanitarian because all the world, all the world, put us in a very devastated situation where people lost hope. Where do you see things going on from here? The march and the events leading to the 70th anniversary of the Nakba will continue in the coming weeks. Where do you see things heading? Politically, I think we are heading to one state solution. And regarding to violence and peace, I think things will go violent next week. Uh, We hope it will not. But unfortunately, uh, Israeli forces say that they will not change the fire uh, orders for them. So they will use the same violence against the demonstration. And we are worried about people get angry and finally things get out of our hands. We are trying to keep it peaceful. People ju- here just want to live decently. And they're just trying to push us 
to relinquish all our rights, even civil rights. It's not just. Unjust, really. And then for uh, tomorrow's events, Friday, can you tell us a little bit about what do you think is going on and what's the preparations looking like for Friday? Because normally we know that Friday is the day when a lot of people go out and protest normally. Friday for Muslims is a day where people pray together in a big groups. That's why we choose this day. We people already collected in a big groups, so they move together to the to the place of the demonstrations. There is preparation, really. They called it Kauchuk Friday or Tires Friday. Okay? The tires, yeah. The name comes out from the one who gets shot in his head by Israeli forces who was just holding a tire. That's why he gets shot in his head. So people get angry and decide that all of them will carry a tire and let them shoot all of us. It's like that. Some people decide to fire these tires and others disagree with them and say it's against the environment. So we will paint them carefully and just show the Israelis that we are, we, we, we are not savages, as, just like their soldiers. We are people who love to live in peace and love to live decent life. For example, in Rafah, there is initiative that to paint all the tires colorfully and uh, show the Israelis that those tires are not a reason to shoot us on head. I guess that's a clarification for people here that don't know. The march or the site of the event on the border, there's multiple sites. Is that correct? Yeah, there are six sites where people collected. The big one is in West Gaza. Every group or every place where people make their march they're trying to make folklore and even uh, play football, handball, things like that. But I'm not sure what will happen tomorrow because I told you that people get angry because of this one who get videoed by cameras that he just been shot because he holding a tire. So the case of this young you. man seems to have been something that people really were very touched by specifically. Yeah. That's why they decide everyone to hold a tire to say that it's not a crime to hold a tire. It's not a crime even to, to burn a tire. So you can't justify our killing like that because someone want a fire or holding a tire who can use it against me. So shot him with a sniper in the head, not just on in before, but in the back of his head. So it's killing in a cold blood. So that make people very angry. So I'm worried about tomorrow. I hope that free people around the world just move to, to change that because Israel thinks that if they shot people, people will, start, will stop demonstrating. People lost everything, lost hope. They are very frustrated. Even if you kill them all, they will not retreat. To retreat is not a choice anymore because we lost everything already. I'm dealing with yours every day, okay? They're ready to die, to die for for nothing, but they wanna still living like that. You know, I know people who already graduated 10 years ago and they don't find a job. I know people that they are um, engineers and doctors and they don't find a job. Some people, by the way, get on, uh, on lunches in the sea and get killed when their lunch is drawn. I think you heard about that when those immigrants yeah, in the Mediterranean. Uh, think in the sea, yeah. So when people are ready to do that, they're ready to do anything else. Anything else or any final thoughts that you want our listeners here in the U.S. and specifically in the Bay Area to know? Any final message? We lost hope in Arabs, by the way. And we now pay them free people around the world. We believe that what makes South African people get their freedom is the good stand of the free world with them. And we want this stand to be with us. We don't want to kill Jews or kill Israelis. We don't want to expel them from the land. We just want to live together. And it's our right to live in peace together, to have our civil rights. I'm calling for all the free people in the world, stand with us. You are in the right side of you, stand with us because we were there from the beginning, before 70 years 
it was called Palestine. My ancestors were there. We are not just transferred to this land. It's our land, our homes, and we want to return. We want our right to return. Mohammad Abdul Wahab Abu Hashem is a legal researcher with the Palestinian Center for Human Rights and a human rights and criminology lecturer at Al-Azhar University in Gaza. He spoke with Vomina's Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. In her recent op-ed in the New York Times titled Gaza Screams for Life, Gaza-based writer Rawan Yaghi describes her visit to the site of the Great March of Return protest at the border two days after the Friday's bloody massacre. She writes, quote, I left the protest thinking of the rest of Gaza, shell-shocked for years, its borders closed, and its United Nations-funded infrastructure in decay. I thought of the kids in my neighborhood who pay football in what used to be the ground floor of a tall residential building, with bare concrete columns and poking iron rods as their only audience. And I thought, once again, Gaza the injured has come out to protest and to scream for life. The daily reality isn't very different from other places in the world in the sense that the ones who have jobs go to their jobs, children go to school, students go to universities, they have dreams, they aspire to achieve them and all of that. But, you know, it's it's the things that are missing that sometimes ruin your day or affect your mood, like coming back home and not finding electricity or realizing that the sea is actually looted and you can enjoy looking at it, but really you can't go into it. You can't swim unless you want to risk your your health. Not having clean water, all of that Gaza is unlivable talk. People try to overcome this. Some of them don't like that fact, you know, they don't like coping with every every pressure that is added. Like every year things get worse in terms of economy, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of borders. Everything gets tighter and people are sick of coping with that, coping with the fact that things are decaying or getting worse in time. And also the fact that Politically, nothing nothing is moving. Everything is kind of on hold, if you like. Can you so, talk yeah. about that a little more? What do you mean everything is on hold? What kind of a political shift do you think will relieve some of the pressure on people who live in Gaza? So the political stalemate is the fact that Hamas and Fatah or Hamas in Gaza and the PA in the West Bank are in constant division. You know, people got really hopeful in October, September, October, when there were news about a a reconciliation. But then things fell apart again. And that's what I mean by political state on hold, Mm. that nobody's looking for a solution, that everybody 
including Israel and Egypt, are kind of happy about the situation, you know? Yeah. Just uh, close the borders, suffocate the economy, uh, starve the people, just like uh, give them some breaks so they don't explode. And that's fine, just keep the prison at a minimum cost. Just the fact that everyone is kind of holding on to uh, a political position. We don't really know who's, who's honest, who's, who's telling the truth. And to, to be honest, and uh, people are, are right, rightfully doubtful. They don't trust anyone. They don't trust Fatah, they don't trust Hamas, they don't trust uh, Egypt, and they certainly don't trust Israel. So people are living this kind of state where they're helpless, and they're unsure. They're unsure about everything. And this is part of why this, these protests and this march was, was called for. Who called for the march? The idea was initiated by a group of intellectuals. And it was called for by intellectuals, academics, and uh, the major political parties in Gaza. And how did they organize so many people, 30,000 to 40,000 people? I don't think they organized it. They just called for it. So you would hear speakers going around the streets and saying, this is a call for the Great March of Return on the eastern borders of Gaza, and that it would be a peaceful demonstration to call for the right of return. And uh, yes, all of the political parties called for it which is why it's so huge. It's all of the political parties as well as independent figures. So everyone, like I said in the article and like I witnessed in the, in the protests, people feel like the march isn't, does not represent one entity as in one political party, but represents the Palestinian entity and the Palestinian spirit. You wrote a beautiful opinion piece in the New York Times. You visited the camp on Sunday, a couple of days after the bloody day when thousands of Palestinians were shot at by the Israeli snipers and they were tear gassed. Give us a sense of what that place looks like, some of the conversations you had with families, with women, men, and children who are staying there till May 15. What did they tell you? about why they're there? So the place is, it's actually one of the most beautiful areas of the Gaza Strip. That's the eastern border. It's mostly agricultural land. So when you live in the center of the city or farther away from the, from the border, it gets denser with buildings mm. rather than trees and fields. And um, that area is just beautiful. It's full of olive groves and farmlands. And when you look eastwards, you can also see farmlands and green fields into what is now Israel. But the area that is designated for the protest has a few tents, really big tents, that kind of remind you of the 1948 refugee crisis in Gaza, in the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, UN tents, if you, if you know what I'm talking about. Yes, so yes. kind of a white uh, row of, of tents with uh, slogans saying, I will return, or I have the right to return, or the family of so-and-so will return. So it was, it was kind of beautiful and sad at the same time that there is this much hope that these people feel about returning and about having the world recognize their right to return. But it was also sad in the sense that it's such a long, long tragedy that we've been carrying this dream or this burden or this right or whatever you want to call it. We've been carrying it for 70 years. But it was, it was um, I guess it's still hopeful if, if people are still clinging to it. Some of the conversations I had well, I was talking to some of the women who seemed really powerful. They had really strong voices and they did not shy from singing or screaming or uh, shouting things like we shall return or uh, singing the song that I wrote about in the article, a really famous, famous one for us Palestinians. 
like some of them were talking about why they're there, expressing the fact that they're there because they cling to the right of return and they want that right. One woman said that she has lost relatives, she had lost her own sons, uh, but that she was there because there are prisoners and there are lands and there is the horrible situation in Gaza, that all of these things are worth marching for, are worth protesting, that we as Palestinian people have have always had a voice and have always fought for our rights. It's kind of made me shy away from my own kind of timidity or <laughs> political correctness or whatever, because she didn't care who was listening. Mm. She just spoke freely and expressed her mind. And someone told you this march is not a march to return to our land at this very moment. It is a mm-hmm. way for us to speak and to raise our voices. I want to go back to the horrible situation that people in Gaza are living under. As you said, there is lack of electricity, drinking water, as a matter of fact, according to World Health Organization. 95% of the water in Gaza is undrinkable. The power plant is not working. 80% of the people in Gaza live on international aid. 60% are under the poverty line. There is almost 50% youth unemployment in Gaza. So how do you get water? Where do you get the electricity from? And what are the impacts of not being able to drink clean water, not being able to have electricity, which is going to impact so many other things, including hospitals? What are the ramifications, the consequences of living under such stifling conditions? My own family buys water, buys drinking water. We fill in a tank on the roof almost uh, once every week or a week and a half. We buy it from a company that I assume buys it in turn from Israel. Hmm. I'm not completely sure about this, but I know that the aquifers of Gaza are all polluted. Yes. So we need to get it from somewhere else. The electricity... We get about four hours a day of electricity. That's because the uh, power plant, it does work, but it can't achieve its 100% capacity because of bad maintenance as well as lack of fuel. So we have to wait for either Egypt or Israel to allow us to buy fuel from them. (laughs) The second question, what are the ramifications of this? There are many. The most dangerous ones are health consequences. We only use the drinking water to drink. So we use polluted water to do everything else. Mm. We use it to wash, to wash the dishes, to wash the food sometimes, and to water plants. And this is your tap water, right? Yes, this is our tap water. Mm -hmm. That will definitely affect our, our health, our digestion systems, our skin, everything. We don't even know if it will have long-term effects on our bodies. We do know that our plants will have long-term effects on our bodies because they have cancerous agents, but they're all we have. And then, as you mentioned, the hospitals. The electricity situation for the hospitals is just terrifying because there are lives that depend on water. There are babies' lives that depend on water. You can just imagine a hospital having to face blackouts every, (laughs) maybe more than once a day. And then there are the equally important dangers of this, which are the mental health effects. If you live in a place like this, you know that you can't go anywhere. You're locked inside. But you're not only locked inside, you're locked inside with a food ratio an electricity ratio and a water ratio. It's almost like torture, but not directly physical torture. So you kind of live in this constant state of, I don't know what to call it, and I don't know if it has a name in in mental health or in psychology, but 
this constant. I mean, people are suffering being, from post-traumatic syndrome. Exactly, which is what this adds to. Imagine a ten-year-old boy who was born in Gaza and has experienced so many traumatic events, even if they haven't directly experienced an explosion or something, they will suffer from uh, post-traumatic stress disorders. Gaza isn't very big. It's it's 40 kilometers long and it's 11 kilometers wide. So anything that happens anywhere is going to affect everyone. Most people here have some sort of uh, mental health I mean, I can't generalize. There are no studies that prove this, but just logically, if you force a population of two million people to go through excessive military attacks, then you will have a traumatized population. Mm. And that population has to live with that trauma as well as the unlivable conditions and the fact that they don't have basic rights. And no jobs. Um, I was reading a shocking story by Agence France Press that was about overwhelming majority of the men who've not been able to pay their debt. They're unemployed. They have racked up a lot of debt. Their business have gone bankrupt. And according to some estimates, 42,500 people were arrested in the past year for failing to pay their debt. And at least 600 people are currently in jail on similar charges. Gaza is described as an open-air prison because Israel controls the air, land, and the sea. People can neither get out or get in. You wrote a piece about checkpoints and your Mm -hmm. own experience crossing Eretz checkpoint. You wanted to go to Jerusalem to go to American embassy because you had an interview to get your visa. So can you talk about what it means for someone who gets the opportunity or as you say, is privileged enough to be able to cross that border? What is that experience like? That experience is one of the most stressful experiences one, one can go through. I mean, I've been through it. A lot of people I know have been through it. And it's just, it's like sitting with your heart in your hand. Because most people who want to get out don't want to get out because they want to go on holiday, which is uh, a valid reason to travel. (laughs) People need to go on holiday, they should go on holiday. But it's not the case for people in Gaza. When people want to travel here, they're either on their deathbed or they're a student who has had a scholarship to study abroad or they've had a job opportunity abroad. And all of these cases are really critical cases in terms of your future. So if your health depends on it or if your future depends on it, then getting that piece of paper that says that you're allowed to get out is the dream, basically. It's a nerve game for everyone who's involved. It's a nerve game for Egypt and for Israel and maybe even the PA, as well as Hamas, maybe. I don't even know. I haven't tried to get out recently. Talking in um, practical terms, you have to apply for a permit. If you want to get out through Eretz, which is the checkpoint between Israel and Gaza, you have to apply for a permit from Israel and you have to apply two months in advance. And during these two months, you will not hear any news about your permit. You will only hear about it the day before, the date you requested to get out or the day of. So you kind of live in this limbo where you don't know anything for two months the chance of you getting rejected is 90%. So you live on 10% hope. It's inhumane. It makes us feel dehumanized as well, because not having the right to move, not having the right to determine your own steps in life, your own decisions in life is dehumanizing. You'd have to read something that talks about it more in detail because it's not an experience I can tell you about in two minutes. 
And I really suggest yeah. for people to read your piece in Mondawise. It's called The Checkpoints. Something you write in this piece that um, I hadn't heard before, you write checkpoints at border crossings in Gaza are also a cruel way to turn needy individuals into collaborators. Can you talk more about this? What happens? A lot of cancer patients specifically have been manipulated and blackmailed into being informers or collaborators for Israel. You ask for a permit to because you can't get cancer treatment here in Gaza. You have to go to Israel to get it. So the Ministry of um, Health applies for a permit or gives you the necessary papers to apply for a permit. And then you might be asked to come to the border for an interview or what they call it interview. And then in the interview, they basically blackmail patients or people who really need to get out. Uh, so they say, okay, we won't let you out unless you cooperate with us. And cooperate is a, is a nicer, milder version <laughs> of what they really want. They just exploit people's needs, and especially people whose lives depend on being allowed out. So, so they get the permission to leave Gaza, and then when they come back, they become collaborators? If they agree to it. If they don't, they won't be allowed out. Can you give us some examples? 26-year-old Fadi Al-Qashtan, who needed a, a heart transplant, and who basically kept applying for a permit for months without luck without any response. He eventually had a call from Israel's intelligence service who said, we know that the device that is keeping you alive is going to stop soon and that he needed to make a simple call for his predicament to be solved, basically, and for him to be allowed out. But he didn't. And because he, he was locked or trapped in Gaza, he passed away. And because his heart failed in 2013, there are so many cases like this. Rewan Yaghi is a writer based in Gaza and a contributor to the 2014 anthology Gaza Writes Back. For more information, visit our Twitter page at Vomina underscore radio. From Pacifica Radio and the Arab Studies Institute, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. On Saturday, March 24th, Reem Banna, a prominent Palestinian singer, songwriter, and composer, passed away in her hometown of Nazareth after a decade-long battle with cancer. She was 51. Reem Banna was not only a cultural icon, but also a voice for the Palestinian people and their struggle. She was known for her alternative, non-commercial music style. One Palestinian writer noted, quote, when Reem sang, her voice penetrated through the seemingly impregnable apartheid walls, checkpoints, military curfews, and unbridgeable distances. Here is Reem singing Ya Leil Ma'atwalak. Ya Leil Ma'atwalak قلبي لا 
Banna, prominent Palestinian singer, songwriter, and composer, passed away in her hometown of Nazareth after a decade-long battle with cancer. She was 51. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, Email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. سلام من خاطري كلام من تمي سلام لأخت الحنوني لبعيدي عني جبرا قوي 
কি দাদু ইনি 